0: let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1st Samuel 19. 1st Samuel 19. I'm going to read, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read the first seven verses, and then we will skip down to verse 18, and read several verses there. So far we have seen some earlier periods in the life of King Saul. We've looked at King Saul's odd beginnings and now we are much further in the history of King Saul. And we're going to read about how Saul was seeking to destroy God's servant David in this particular chapter in how God protects him. 1 Samuel 19:1. Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, then I will tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Then drop down to verse 18. Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Nioth. It was told to Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Nioth and Ramoth. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah, and came as far as the large well that is in Seku. And he asked, And said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Behold, they are at Nioth in Ramah. He proceeded there to Nioth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Nioth in Ramah. He also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Let's let's take a moment again to ask for God's blessing upon his word. Our Father, we thank you for all that your word says to your people. We thank you for the things that we have heard this morning concerning your kindness and grace to your believing people in Corinth, and how you have promised that you would faithfully care for your people and bring them blameless before the presence of Jesus Christ. We thank you, our God, that these are promises for us. But now, our Father, we desire to learn the lessons you would teach us from the life of King Saul, We pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Help us, our Father, not to turn away from any truth which you have declared in your word here, but grant that we may gain wisdom and courage and strength from the word of God this evening. And we ask this trusting in your grace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, we're returning to a strange and difficult portion of scripture as we look further into the life of King Saul. And I committed myself to speak just to to bring just two sermons on the life of King Saul. Uh, There are many others that we could look at, but uh, God has, has included this portion in the word of God to teach us about his ways and his kingdom. When we, are, when we read our Bibles, we will come across such things as we find in the life of King Saul. Why does God include these things? Why do we read such passages as the one we have read this evening? So we will understand God's power. We, can, we will understand his sovereignty. He's given us these things so that we will grow in our confidence in God because God is able to guard and guide his people in the midst of their great trials. I think you can easily see that this is one of the darkest parts of Israel's history when the king is ruling in the name of Jehovah and yet the king is actually fighting against the purposes of God. That's a dark, that's a dark time. Well, last time we looked at King Saul's odd beginnings, and I just want to quickly summarize and remind you of what we saw. We saw last time in uh, the prelude, the prelude to King Saul's reign, when Israel in 1 Samuel 8 asked for a king. And they asked for a king because they did not trust in God to protect them. And that's what the beginning of this period in their history was. We looked in the second place at the occasion of Saul's anointing. We saw how God brought Saul into contact with Samuel. How God had told Samuel the day before Saul came that he was on his way. We saw why Saul was in Ramah. Saul was not initially in Ramah to, to look for the prophet, to find the will of God, but he had been sent by his father to look for missing donkeys. And Saul, as you remember, was ready to go home since he was unable to find him. And that's when the servant of Samuel, Saul told him about Samuel since they were already at Ramah. Saul didn't know about Samuel and when he met Samuel, the prophet had hinted that he would receive the best Israel could offer. And then uh, again, in this uh, occasion of his anointing, we uh, we saw that um, Saul was a reluctant king. Saul had anointed him, Saul had given him directions, and when it came to anointing time, he hid himself. Among the baggage, so Saul was an, a uh, a reluctant king. The, the the last thing that we looked at last time was about the anointing and the sign. There was there were there were meetings meetings that that Saul was going to have with certain men, certain prophets and that happened uh, as prophesied by Samuel, and Saul prophesied. Interesting, isn't it? And we see at the beginning, Saul prophesies, and there's this proverb, is Saul among the prophets. They say, what has happened to the son of Kish? And we might well ask when we come to that second time when Saul prophesies, what has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets. Well, I, as I pointed out last week, there were already indications in that earlier history of King Saul, there are already indications of problems with King Saul. And this evening, we're going to look at more indications. You'll read things about King Saul which seem like small matters. This, this is a part of our instruction. And certain things seem like small matters. And you say, well, is it really that significant? Well, they are all significant because they all add up to very serious sins in the life of King Saul. King Saul was, for example, unwilling to take his role. He was a reluctant king. King Saul was unconcerned with his own partial obedience. He did some things that God said, but other things that God said he was he was not concerned to do. So he was a man guilty of partial obedience. Again, that's one of the lessons that we we ourselves need to take heed to. The seriousness of partial obedience. King Saul was also self-willed. King Saul was willing to plot his own course apart from the word of God. These are things we'll see again this evening, uh, about these dangerous sins of King Saul, and then we'll take some, some lessons for ourselves. So I want to bring up three things this evening, again, with this later period of the life of King Saul, and we're going to start with an incident of a small army. A small army. We need to remember... Saul's task and his resources. Saul was anointed king in order to secure the nation according to God's directions. Look back, please, at 1 Samuel 9. 1 Samuel 9 and verse 16. When God pointed out Saul to Samuel, he had told Samuel what King Saul was supposed to do. Very significant. He says in verse 16, about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. Here's his task. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. So that, you, you might say, would be, if, if Saul were a believer, that would be Saul's life verse. What am I supposed to do? Why am I here in this world? What good do I serve? Why should I be king? Well, the answer is to protect God's people and to deliver his people from the Philistines. Why? Because they are God's people under God's care, and God is going to deliver his people. And Saul is to be the instrument of that deliverance. Now, the first battle that Saul fights is actually not with the Philistines at all. He fights with the uh, Ammonites at Jabesh Gilead in 1st Samuel chapter 11, and we want to look at a, uh, one or two things here which are very significant uh, about this. He goes to, uh, the, actually, this is the king in First Samuel First uh, 11, 1, who scares Israel in the first place. It's Nahash the Ammonite. He came up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, one of the towns of uh, Israel, and um, the People in Jabesh Gilead are ready to surrender to Nahash, but Nahash has a very unreasonable and unreasonable uh demand of them. Come out, and I'm gonna take out one of your eyes, and this, I'm going to humiliate you and Israel. So, Saul, so, here's the report of this event, this threat of Nahash the Ammonite and the Ammonites, and he succeeds in defeating them and delivering Jabesh Gilead. So this is, this is a hopeful, a hopeful sign that Saul is ready to fight and Saul's strategy works. God blesses him and he succeeds in delivering Jabesh Gilead. One of the things we learn in 1 Samuel 11 is his resources, the resources that he has. Um, In verse 8, Saul has called the people and he's numbering the army. Verse 8, he numbered them in Bezek and the sons of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah were 30,000. So Saul has an armed force for war of 330 men. This is very significant because Saul is not going to, he fights uh, Nahash and the Ammonites with the 330,000 men, but then he does something very peculiar. The war with the Philistines, Saul has a much smaller army in 1 Samuel 13, he has succeeded with 330,000 men, but now he begins to fight the Philistines, and this is a different matter. Uh, notice verses 1 and 2, which our brother read in 1 Samuel 13. Samuel was uh, a year, the King James has a year, the New American Standard has 30 years old. And when he began to reign, he reigned 42 years over Israel. I realize the difference. I'm not going to deal with it. It's not significant for us. But notice verse 2. This is what is significant. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Judah In Benjamin, but he sent away the rest of the people each to his tent. Now notice the advantage of the Philistines. Saul has a standing army now of three thousand men, which he which he chose from three hundred and thirty thousand men, and he sends the rest of the three hundred and thirty thousand men home. Notice the advantage of the Philistines in verses 5 and 6. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, uh, assembled to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen already, many times the number of Saul's army, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And you know what it means when you talk about uh, numbers like the sands on the sea. That's the promise that God made to Abraham. Your descendants are going to be like the sand of the sea. It is a very large and uncountable number. So the Philistines, aside from their 30,000 chariots and their 6,000 horsemen, have a very large standing army. And the result of this in verse 6 is when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for well, the people who hard pressed and the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. Well, this is, this is the problem with the very small army. The small army. So the question that we ought to think about is why did Saul muster an army of only 3,000 Men, why did Saul do this? I think I understand. Let me let me use a little illustration that the youngest, probably most of the young, can understand this, this illustration as well. Suppose we were going to play checkers. You know, when you play checkers, you have 12 men on the board. That's how you start. 12 men on each side. Suppose we're playing checkers, and I tell you, you can use all 12 of your checker pieces, I'm only going to use three. I ask this to the high school students, all the students in Trinity Christian School, why would I allow you to have 12 pieces and me to have only three? It's a simple answer. I don't want to win. I don't want to win. If Saul has available to him 330,000 soldiers, but he chooses only... Three thousand soldiers. Why? Because Saul doesn't want to win. Saul doesn't want to fight. Saul doesn't want his people to fight, and that's exactly what this does to the people of Israel. You see, they're just demoralized. They say, "Well, look, we have we have this small army, very small, and the Philistines have all this huge army. What's the use? Why should we even try?" We need to hide because we're going to lose and we're going to be destroyed. That's exactly what happens to these people. And this is Saul's problem. Saul's problem is he's unconcerned with the job the Lord is giving him. He does not want to fight and he does not want his people to fight. But his son, Jonathan, loves the Lord. His son, Jonathan, believes in the Lord. And his son is the one who actually fights. You see that earlier in the narrative. It says, Jonathan went and struck the garrison. And Saul took credit for it, interestingly. And later on again, Jonathan goes with just him and his servant. And he says, the Lord is not constrained to save by few or many. It's as if, uh, Jonathan says, two with the Lord is the majority Two with the Lord can win. Jonathan is a man of faith. Jonathan is a man of courage. Jonathan is a man who wants to fulfill God's will. But Saul, King Saul, is not. This is an indication of the character, the true character of King Saul. It's the small army, the incident of the small army. Let's look in the second place. At the partial disobedience, the partial disobedience of King Saul. The small army is one problem. The partial obedience of King Saul is another problem, another indication of his true character. And I'll ask you to put this question up in your mind. What's the problem, or what's the true nature of partial obedience? What is partial obedience really an indication of? Well, well it's, a, it's an easy question, right? We'll come back to it in a couple of moments. But let's look now at these, these two incidents of partial obedience. We go back to 1 Samuel 10, verses 7 and 8. And these are the directions of Samuel Again, we're going back to the very beginning when Samuel gives Saul directions. He gives him the directions about the prophets whom he's going to meet and how the Lord will come upon him and he will be changed to another man. Verse seven, it shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. So there are the clear directions, the simple directions of Samuel the prophet. He says, go here to this place. God is with you. When you get there, do what you can, do what you need to do, but wait seven days for me to come and offer the sacrifices. And the sacrifices were uh, a religious confidence in God that says, okay, we're going to war. We want God to bless us. We want God to be with us. Saul is being told God is with you, but Saul's not allowed to offer the sacrifices and most of you know why. Samuel was a Levite. He was. He was allowed to, as a Levite, to offer sacrifice. King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was not to offer sacrifice. And now, what he does, I look over in chapter 13, 1 Samuel chapter 13, starting in verse 8. Again, here's Samuel, Saul, with a small army. By his own doing, and we read in verse 8, Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Daniel, by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I Forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him a ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord Commanded you. So here's Saul's partial obedience. And partial obedience is tragic disobedience. He disobeyed God. And Samuel faithfully tells Saul, Look, this is what you've done. And notice the consequences. Because you have flagrantly disobeyed God and did what God had commanded in his law not to be done. Your kingdom is going to end. It's going to end soon. And God is going to make himself another king. We know who that king is. Of course, King David. This is the first instance of Saul's, I, I call it a partial obedience. It's actually no obedience at all. But look over in chapter 15 for a moment. What we're doing is we're unveiling... Saul's true character. He makes a small army. He disobeys God. He's guilty of partial obedience. It's really religious disobedience. Notice in chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel, Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him and put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then, Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from the, um, among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur which is east of Egypt he captured Agag the king of the Amalekites alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep the oxen the fatlings the lambs and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel arose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, And behold, he set up a monument for himself, and then turned and proceeded down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, I have bought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, is it not true? Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, "Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated." Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, "I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and have brought back Ahag, the king of the Amalekites." And have utterly dest- the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, "Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams." For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. There is Saul's partial obedience, which is tragic disobedience. Saul had a religion which was extremely extremely shallow. He could hear God's commands and then decided, well, this part we'll do. This part we won't do. We have a better idea. God has this idea. God gives us this command. But you know what? We have a better idea. Always a danger when you start thinking, I have a better idea than God has in giving me his commandments." Partial obedience is tragic. We will find that Saul is able to not only to ignore what he didn't, what doesn't want to do from the Lord, but he is able to make oaths and violate them. So this is Saul's real character. This is what unveils to us the man. You, you say, well, the, there are a lot of little things that, come up in the life of King Saul. And he does, sure, he doesn't do everything God says, but he does some of what God says. Again, disobedience, partial obedience is actually tragic disobedience. And this forfeits the kingdom for King Saul. So, when we take these facts, we think back upon the things that we have seen about the scriptures it reinforces for us what we have been studying about the importance of God's word be sure that you know what God's will is if you're going to obey God and you're going to be his servant you need to know the scriptures you can't be ignorant of God's will and when God makes his will clear then our responsibility is to go and do the things that God says. Don't think that you know a better idea than what God tells you to do. And there are multitudes of people this day who named the name of Christ, who say that they are Christians, and they are guilty of partial obediences, only some. This, this idea, I, I like this idea of... Uh, 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 going to church every Sunday, going to church and worshiping God among the company of his people. I like that. But, you know, uh, keeping a whole day, going to church twice on the Lord's Day, going to church and giving God all of my day as opposed to a part of my day. I like that idea better. I think that's more reasonable. I think I'll have more people who will be pleased with me my family will be happier etc etc well what does god say god teaches us here that partial obedience is tragic so we need to be sure to do what that old hymn says give of your best to the master give them the strength of your youth we are to be devoted to do all that God says we should do. So that's that's the second thing. We looked at the small army, and we've looked at the partial obedience. Now the third thing we're going to look at, and there's much more we could look at in the passages, but uh, we won't. We're going to look at jealousy against David. That's the third feature of Saul's true character, jealousy, opposition, persecution against David. Now, there's ample reference in these passages, in this section of the scriptures, to, to the fact that the people of God loved David. I wanted to take a moment to just list out the people who love David. Uh, actually, all the way back, when Saul first meets David, he, Saul is being troubled by an evil spirit. And David is brought into play his heart and to calm Saul's soul. And Saul loved David, I won't take the time to read it there, but you'll find it in 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 to 21. Saul loves David. Why does Saul love David? Because of personal benefit. It was a selfish love. David can help me. David can calm me. David can minister to me. So I love David. It wasn't, it wasn't very last thing, right? Secondly, Jonathan loved David, 1 Samuel 18, 1-3. He loved him as his own soul. He loved David because, because David was God's warrior, and David was doing what Saul had initially been appointed to do, to protect Israel and to defeat the Philistines. David does it, in 1 Samuel 17, and Jonathan loved David. Israel loves David. Uh, later on in chapter 18, will will turn you there again just to tell you, uh, 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 1 Samuel 18, 16, Israel loved David. Now, Saul, in the passage that we read at the beginning here, 1 Samuel 19, 6, Saul had sworn that he would not kill David, and he swore in the name of Jehovah. Think about that. He is taking a religious vow to God that he would not kill David. But in the same chapter, he turns around and he is determined he's going to track David down, he's going to get David, he's going to kill David. And he pursues David with zeal. Again, this is the character of King Saul. He is unconcerned about religious commitments that he makes to Jehovah God. He becomes jealous of David, you remember, because David kills Goliath and then the women have that wonderful song, asked, uh, a musician I know, to make me a tune so I can sing it. David is killed, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands, and Saul is jealous. Saul has in the back of his mind what Samuel has told him twice now. God has a king who's going to replace you, a king who's going to do for him what you would not do as his servant. So your, your days are numbered King Saul and he is jealous and he resents David and he resents everyone who loves David. In fact, he's willing to try to kill his own son because his son loves David. So here is here is a, a point of application. Beware of jealous resentment of those who are more godly and useful than yourself. That was one of Saul's sins. He was jealous of a man who was more godly and more useful. Now I know uh, that it is among men, uh, among people at a job, people will say, well, you're making me look bad. You work too hard. You work too well. So, you're making me look bad. And that was indeed the problem with King Saul. David was making him look bad. David's a little boy. Saul is the tallest man in the kingdom. Saul has the army. Saul does not try to send anyone against Goliath. He has no faith that God will deliver his people. But David has faith that God will deliver his people. Remember what... uh, The giant Goliath says, do you come to me with sticks like like I was a dog? And David tells him, you have taunted the armies of the living God. So God is going to take you down at my hand and I'm going to cut off your head and I'm going to feed your dead body to the birds of heaven. That's, That's King David. Courageous and zealous. And Saul is jealous of David. Is it possible for Christians to be jealous of other Christians? Well, it is. It is. And we ought to be aware of anything creeping up in our hearts, which is a kind of jealousy. Well, this this particular brother, this particular sister is more zealous, more dedicated to the Lord, more faithful to the Lord, and whether other people think so or not, sometimes our conscience says, well, that's, that is that uh, is showing me up. Well, what we ought to do is rejoice that God has people who can serve him better than we can, and we ought to rejoice in them. We ought to love them, we ought to support them, and we ought to suppress and repent of any measure of jealousy which creeps up. In our lives. And of course, when we read our Bible, we have the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a striking resemblance between David and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the treatment of David and the treatment of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Pharisees hated Jesus, they were jealous of Jesus. Time and time again, it says, that people would turn to the Lord and and the Jews would be jealous. The Jews would be angry. Look, they say, the whole world has gone after him. They should have been rejoicing that uh, prostitutes and tax collectors were coming to Jesus, but they resented it. So this is something that we ought to watch out for in our hearts that there should ever be resentment and jealousy coming from people whom God blesses and uses. Let me um, let me make another point of application because we are winding down. Another point of application regarding the days of King Saul. These were very dark days in the kingdom of God when King Saul is king and the the thing which he most desires to do is to destroy King David. Very dark days. Fortunately, Jonathan had the kind of faith that says, you're going to be king and I'm going to be next to you. My father knows this also. And so here's here's my application. In the darkest days of your life, when it seems like the most powerful people are people who don't love God, but who hate God, never give up your faith. Never give up. Never give in to unbelief. It would have been very easy for men like David, To give up in unbelief, Jonathan to give up in unbelief. And David almost did. But Jonathan never did. Never give up on your faith. You're you're being taught, especially those of you who are younger, you're being taught to believe in the Lord and to love the Lord and to serve the Lord with your life. And it's not getting any easier. Because the media is against the Bible and against the Lord Jesus Christ. Most people you meet with in your public life don't want to hear the gospel and don't believe in God. And you might say, well, it'd be easier. It would be easier not to to serve Jesus Christ. But you should never give up. Never give up. Because this is the point. All during the life of King Saul, God is still in charge. God is still establishing his program. God is still bringing to his people the one who will be a king after his own heart. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is able to work all things together for good. Whether it's political leaders, cultural leaders, people of influence... We must never give up, we must never give in to unbelief and service to the Lord. Then I wanted to make one other point of application about repentance. About repentance, one of the things that did not mark King Saul. Was repentance? He gave in from sin to sin. He never turned away. Oh, he said, I know what he said. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. But there was no sincere repentance. There was no turning away from his sinful disobedience to obeying God. So, my application is this. Repent quickly and thoroughly of your sins. Don't minimize your sins. Look upon your sins. Think about them seriously. Confess them to the Lord and ask for his forgiving grace and his sanctifying grace. Because once you go down the road of sin, sometimes it seems relatively easy. It's a a little lie. It's a little deed which nobody else sees. But I've heard this before, that sin is invasive. Sin is a cancer. Sin will take you farther than you intend to go. You'll never know where one sin will lead if you don't repent of it. It will take you farther. You say, I'm only going to do this. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you from the Lord longer than you intend. You say, well, I'm, I'm just going I'll turn right back around just a little bit and then no more. Well, you don't have that kind of power to control sin yourself. God does, but you don't. And sin will cost you more than you ever intended to pray, pay when you begin sinning. That's the seriousness of sin. So don't be like Saul. Repent of your sins quickly and thoroughly and remember the Savior whom you have, it's the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ is able to forgive us our sins. The Lord Jesus Christ is able to turn us into the path of obedience and make us steadfast in his ways. And therefore, you may and you should repent of your sins quickly. I will say one other thing and then I'll be done. I promise. Beware of selfish love. Beware of selfish love. I know a man who said very seriously, he says, I love those who love me. He was very serious and he thought it was a very good thing to say. I love those who love me. I love those who pray for me. I love those who do things for me. That is a Selfish love, contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you love those who love you, what do you more than others? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Matthew five forty six. You have an obligation to love your neighbor as yourself. You have an obligation, a reasonable obligation to love the people of God because they are the people of God. They may not be like you inhabit. They may have different tastes than you have. If they are God's people, you ought to love them, not for what you can get from them, but because they are the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. That will keep us From many sins and from many uh, tragic falls because we love the people of God. May God help us by his grace to take heed to these lessons. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. Although these have not been pleasant things to reflect upon yet, you have put them in your word for our teaching for our edification, in order that you may direct our feet. We do pray that you will help us. Help us to see the danger signs of jealousy and of selfishness and of partial obedience. Help us to repent of them quickly and thoroughly. Cleanse us by the blood of Christ from all of our sins and lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We do desire, Lord, to give you our best, to give you our all, to be faithful soldiers of Jesus Christ. So please, use the things we have studied this evening to stir up our minds and our hearts and help us to walk in the uh, path of our Lord Jesus Christ to serve you. Receive our thanks for your presence with us this evening and bless us in your ways. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen.